You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On March 21st, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and Center for Public Leadership at Harvard Kennedy School hosted a discussion with Harvard professors Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, authors of How Democracies Die. Harvard Kennedy School Academic Dean Archon Fung, Winthrop Laughlin McCormick Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government, moderated. Scott Mainwaring, Jorge Paulo Lehman Professor for Brazil Studies, provided an introduction. This conversation was a part of the Ash Center's Democracy in Hard Places initiative. Let's listen in. Um, it might be funny that we're having a discussion about the U.S. <laughs> as part of that series, but we are. Um, so um, the next two events in that series on March 29th, Alicia Holland of Princeton University is speaking on... Um, uh, in f- the politics of informal welfare on, in Latin America at the Ash Center. And then on April 19th, Kathleen Collins from the University of Minnesota will be part of the series. Other than that, my only task this afternoon is to introduce the academic dean of the Kennedy School, Archon Fung, who is a leading expert on democratic theory and democratic innovation. Great. Thanks a lot, Scott. So, it's a demagogism at all. I mean, that's the link. Thanks, everyone, for coming out this afternoon to this uh, exciting and important discussion of a, a book whose authors I will introduce in a moment uh, on how democracies die. Uh, this is also uh, part of a series on American democracy and the challenges to American democracy. Uh, the next. Um, Element in the, the next big event in this series will be on May. When's, when's Eric Holder coming? On April, 30th. on April 30th, Eric Holder will be doing a uh, forum event on the theme of political participation and voting and redistricting. And that will be the public event uh, to a seminar, a symposium, in which uh, people will discuss strategies to getting to full participation in American politics. As uh, comparativists may know, the uh, voting age participation in the United States is 28 out of 35 of the OECD countries. So we're very near the bottom of the list. If you could wave a wand and get most of what people want in this domain around felon disenfranchisement and uh, taking care of uh, voter suppression issues, you might boost that by a few percentage points and we'd barely move the needle. What would it take to really move the needle to get US electoral participation up to a rate that's respectable for an advanced democracy? That is the topic of the May 3rd conversation. Tonight, uh, though, we're talking about how democracies die in this wonderful book by Steve and Dan Zblatt. Uh, it's really interesting to juxtapose this conversation with a conversation that we had just a few weeks ago with Ben Page and Marty Gillens. And in putting these two books together, there might be maybe two different ideas of democracy that emerge. So Ben and Marty offer a critique of American democracy that is focused on the lack of substantive democracy. So they say, they say, look at public opinion for the last few decades, uh, what public opinion has wanted on many, many issues the government has not delivered. And so that makes that, that for them, that's a real challenge to democracy 
understood as majority rule, right? You might think, well, what democracy means is what the majority wants, the majority gets. They say that hasn't been true in American politics for a long, long time, maybe not ever. That's the problem they point to. Dan and Steve, in their book, point to a very different conception of democracy and different worries. And I think their conception of democracy is a kind of procedural conception and an institutional conception of democracy that has to do with uh, free and fair elections and elites competing on a relatively fair and open playing field. And their worry, when democracies that they look at die, that playing field crumbles. And so institutional and procedural democracy is in danger. And so I think it's important to keep in mind like what the idea of democracy that people are uh, worried about and concerned about is. And both uh, the authors from a few weeks ago and Dan and Steve are worried that American democracy is falling short of the democratic ideal, but they have kind of two benchmarks in mind. Steve Levitsky is my neighbor. I see him all the time walking his dog by my house. Uh, perhaps more than, important than that, he's a professor of government at Harvard University who's looked a lot at uh, comparative politics, especially Latin America, and a bunch of his work, he's been uh, uh, maybe the most, one of the most important scholars, deepening our understanding of the spectrum of regimes from uh, democracy to authoritarianism. When Jean Kirkpatrick characterized the term, she only had two regimes that were non-democratic, authoritarian and totalitarian. Uh, Steve has taken a much closer look at a uh, large number of polities in Latin America and elsewhere saying, hey, look, the picture is a lot more complicated than that. There are many varieties of non-democracy and many varieties of authoritarianism. Dan Zeblatt is a professor of government who looks at the emergence and stability of democracy with an historical lens, largely in Europe uh, from the 19th century and the 20th century and has really uh, deepened our understanding of how democracies emerge uh, out of party competitions with a, with a, a special eye toward uh, populist forces, but also the role of conservative political forces in creating and stabilizing democracy. After Steve and Dan uh, comment and present on uh, their book, some of the ideas in their book, we'll have a comment from Alex Kazar, who's an historian of American democracy. He is the Matthew uh, W. Sterling Professor of History and Social Policy. He's written a lot of books, including the award-winning uh, right book on the right to vote, which is in second, second edition, third edition? Third edition. Third edition, and he's finishing a book on the strange, uh, the strange persistence of the Electoral College as an institution in America that probably shouldn't persist, but has persisted for a very long time and is likely to persist for quite some time, I think. All right, so welcome, uh, Steve and Dan. So although my last name is Ziblatt, I'm going to go first. We're going to tag team this, uh, this afternoon. I'll speak for about half the time and then hand things over to Steve to finish off. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming uh, and to the Ash Center as well as the Center for Pub uh, Public Leadership for sponsoring this event and being at the Kennedy School. You know, every time we give a, this talk, people ask us inevitably, what about the Electoral College? And now, you know, we can just pass it over to you. So I'm happy to know that that's what you're working on. Um, so thank you, everybody. Thank you, Archon, and everyone for organizing this. So um, I'm going to talk, we're going to talk today really about three lessons learned while writing this book, uh, three kind of discoveries that we made um, while working on this book. 
but before I do that, I thought I would start by just telling a little bit about the motivation why we went about writing this book, how, how it came to be that we wrote this book, How Democracies Dies, because in many ways it was an unlikely event uh, to go about writing this book. Both Steve and I, neither Steve nor I, uh, have spent our professional lives studying American politics. Um, I study European politics, as Arkan just mentioned. Steve studies developing democracies around the world with a special focus on Latin America. But we, perhaps like many of you, watched the election of 2015, 2016 with shock, disbelief, puzzlement as social scientists at the tenor of the political debate. Uh, and we had this extra layer, though, or distinctive angle, extra layer of trepidation at the nature of the, of the political discourse coming out of the 2015-2016 election because we've spent much of our careers studying democracies in crisis. And the campaign resonated with us in, in very distinctive ways. I mean, at first it was really just the small echoes. Um, you know, during, we, during the campaign, this is this, the rhetorical bluster is now sadly very familiar. In 2016, the, the Republican candidate, candidate Trump railed against the media in unprecedented ways. Um, he said he wouldn't necessarily accept the results of elections. He threatened to lock up his rival. He condoned, at the very least, uh, violence at election rallies. So, you know, a lot of people thought this was just talk. And in many senses, it is just talk. Uh, but on the other hand, we approached this rhetoric and thought about this rhetoric and, and, and saw it from a distinctive angle, having studied democracies in crisis in other parts of the world, and this resonated. Um, you know, Warren Wins in a great book um, from the 1970s, The Breakdown of Democratic Regimes, proposes a litmus test. And we were both, we've both taught this together in courses, and, and, it's, and it's spread out over many pages in his book, The Breakdown of Democratic Regimes. And he, in this litmus test, he proposes, he proposes a litmus test to identify authoritarian, potential authoritarians before they come to power. And what we were struck by in all of this rhetoric is that uh, Donald Trump was passing this litmus test with flying colors. So again, these four rhetorical moves of going after the media, challenging uh, the legitimacy of elections, attacking the legitimacy of rivals, condoning violence, this was the heart of the litmus test. So it made us very worried. And the alarm bells went off for both of us. Especially since in the American political context, no major party presidential candidate had ever behaved this way. And in the part of the world that we studied, in the times that we've studied, uh, political figures have behaved this way and it never ends well. So we, we really had this uncanny feeling. We had seen this movie before. Uh, we knew that it rarely ends well. And so we became convinced during 2016 that we, really, we had to write this book. And the goal was really to try to draw upon lessons um, of other countries to understand how countries, when confronting democratic crises, sometimes overcome those crises and other times succumb to the crises. And what lessons could we draw for the United States? So we really wanted to conduct a, a sober analysis, one that wasn't panicked, but one that really took these threats seriously and put the threats in a broader context. So that, that was really the goal. So while working on the book, we came to some conclusions that in some ways I think challenged the way that lots of people think about the Trump presidency. I mean, we, it's, it's easy to be distracted, I think, by tweets and out, you know, outrages, and I am you know, every day kind of checking what Donald Trump has said, but this is a distraction, and so I try to not do this, because in many ways, uh, we, I think we have to keep our eye on the ball, and what, what we argue in the book, in part, is that, that Donald Trump is a symptom as much as a, as a cause of many of our ills, and I think we're seeing the ills kind of playing out every day. Um, so, to get to this conclusion, though, we really, we kind of, ha we had three sort of uh, discoveries or lessons we kind of learned while writing the book. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the first uh, and then uh, hand it over to Steve, who will talk about the second two. Uh, 
So the first uh, lesson, or the first discovery, in many ways sounds perhaps obvious, but it's, but it's more elaborate than it first sounds. The first lesson is this. The best way to stop proto-authoritarians is to prevent them from coming from power, to power in the first place. Okay, so what does this mean exactly? Well, in the context of the United States, uh, we have to pay attention, pay attention to not just why Donald Trump won the election, but why he ever became the nominee of a, of a major party in the first place. So to put this into context, in the Cold War, three quarters of democratic breakdowns came at the hand of, hands of men with guns and military coups. Since the collapse of communism, uh, the way that democracies die is often through the ballot box, much more frequently through the ballot box, through elections. So demagogues come to power in elections, and once in power, they inflict serious damage on democratic institutions. So a grave paradox, then, if, as we think about this, facing democracies today is how does a democracy pre prevent someone from coming to power through those democratic institutions who then once in power attacks the democratic institutions? So how, how do we get out of this bind? And in many ways, the US has happily avoided this paradox. Not, other countries haven't so happily avoided this paradox. The US has happily avoided this paradox through, through much of its history. But it's not because there were a lack of potential autocratic leaders or people with authoritarian tendencies. It's not because there weren't voters who might have supported those figures. In fact, in the book, we make the case that we have a tendency to whitewash our own history, that there's a long, uh, you know, not very glorious history over the course of the 20th century, um, at least just the 20th century, of, of demagogues with authoritarian tendencies. So, you know, we can begin with Henry Ford in the 1920s who wanted to run for president and had visions of running for president. So he was a you know, famous anti-Semite, the founder of Ford Motor Company, uh, was quoted favorably in the in early editions of Mein Kampf, um, and uh, you know, was quite popular, and there was sort of reader polls done of, of magazines and so on. Um, Huey Long in the 1930s, Joe McCarthy in the 1950s, George Wallace in the 1960s. So there's really not a continuous strain of these figures. And what's more striking is that if you look at Gallup poll data going back to the 1930s, these guys generally garner around 35% approval ratings, which kind of interestingly kind of looks like the support for our current president. So I think it's actually not too much to say, when we make this case in the book, that there, along with a liberal tradition in America, there's also an illiberal tradition, a nearly continuous strand in our history. But the point here is, none of these figures I've just mentioned ever came close to becoming president. So what was different in 2016 is this kind of figure became the president, became the candidate of a major party, and then became president. So the question is, what prevented this from happening in the past, given this continuous strand of, of support for illiberal candidates, potential illiberal figures, and what changed in 2016? So we, we argue two contributing factors, and we elaborate this in more detail in the book. But the first thing that changed, so what changed in, in, before 2016, what changed, what makes our current moment different than the past, was one, the way we pick our presidents has changed. So until 1972, as, as most of you all probably know, really, so the first three quarters of the 20th century, presidential candidates were selected by party leaders. Party leaders got together at party conventions um, and got together and chose candidates. And the system was a system in which people who worked up close with uh, politicians, who knew their weaknesses and strengths, had seen them in moments of triumph and moments of crisis, knew these guys well, selected candidates, you know, sometimes mediocre candidates, but nonetheless, they, they were the ones selecting the candidates. And these, this is the kind of infamous smoke-filled back room, which had, has a lot to criticize about it. I mean, all systems have advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantage of this system is that it wasn't transparent, it was very exclusive. The advantage of this system is that it appears to have been essentially perfect in weeding out potential demagogues to take the, the mantle of a major political party. 
So th the world changed in 1968 in lots of ways. The way we select our presidents also changed. So beginning in 1972, pr uh, presidential primaries now mattered. Voters now had a binding say. And so the, the general election was now preceded by this long season that we are all familiar with of, of primaries. Uh, and at the time, you know, the, the old system had been described by some political sci scientists favorably as a system of peer review. These same political scientists, once the system uh, was transformed in 1972, warned that the system might be vulnerable to the rise of demagogues. This filtration system or gatekeeping system had effectively kept demagogues out, and now the system had changed. And again, it was more open, it was more democratic. We wouldn't advocate going back to the old system, but on the other hand, we have to recognize, I think, that this didn't make it easier, and, these, and Nelson Polsby and others at the time warned, this, warned of this, that it would be easier for somebody to get through the obstacle, process, obstacle course process of getting the, winning the nomination, it would be easier for a demagogue to get through this process. And you know, of course, the Democrats have a system of superdelegates, which kept some elements of the old system. Uh, Republicans did not. And so if a demagogue ever were to run for the nomination, and if the circumstances were right, the, the, it was easier to get through this process. So this is exactly what happened in 2016. Donald Trump, a modern-day demagogue, became the nominee of the Republican Party. So that's the first big factor, the way we select our presidents changed. The second big factor that we elaborate, in some ways a much more kind of critical factor with broader reach for thinking about democracies around the world, uh, is a second big factor. And this, you know, we have to remember that Don, just because Donald Trump won the nomination didn't mean he was going to become president. I mean, first of all, Hillary Clinton could have beat him. But actually, more importantly, in some respects, is this absolutely imperative role was to be played by a Republican Party establishment, party allies. So authoritarians come to power when we look around the world, not on their own, but with the enabling aid of political allies from the political establishment. So this repeats itself throughout history. Italy in the 1920s, Germany in the 1930s, uh, Latin America, Venezuela in the 1990s. So this is really a crucial test. When a demagogue who clearly violates democratic rules and norms gets close to power, the, one of the last off-ramps uh, is whether or not establishment party politicians, party allies, will finally break with the autocrat in the making. Will they draw a line in the sand and say, beyond this we will not go? Or do they abdicate, overlook the violations, let party Trump their commitment to democratic norms, and in effect form a kind of Faustian bargain, allowing somebody who might be an ideological an ally, but somebody who might also be an autocrat in the making into power. Do they enable the authoritarian? When elected autocrats get into power at this last stage, it's nearly always because mainstream politicians out of opportunism or out of miscalculation decide to let them in the door. So the Republican Party's role here is not unique, the enabling role of the Republican Party. This happens remarkably often. In Venezuela in the 1990s, Hugo Chavez got sort of his start uh, when Rafael Caldera, mainstream, longtime fixture of Venezuelan politics, freed Caldera from jail, or freed Chavez from jail, and, uh, and boosted his popularity, his legitimacy. Within several years, Chavez was uh, president, and Caldera was long gone. In Italy in the 1920s, Benito Mussolini was an outcast of the Italian political system. Giovanni Giletti, a, a mainstream liberal politician, um, included Mussolini's party on the party list because he wanted to tap into some of the energy on the right side of this kind of fascist energy on the right side of the party spectrum. Uh, within a year, Mussolini was in power, Gelati was long gone. And in Weimar, Germany, I mean, this is a, in many ways a very different case, of course, than the United States, but I think there's some lessons to be learned. The leader of the German Conservative Party, Alfred Hugenberg, uh, despised Hitler, but seeing all of this action on the right started holding joint rallies with Hitler's party, 
uh, issued common programs with Hitler. This elevated Hitler, Hugenberg sort of quickly faded from the scene. Hitler continued to rise. And in January 1933, when Hitler was appointed chancellor, Franz von Papen famously tried to convince his conservative friends, it's okay, you know, we can let this guy in, we can control him. And in a famous quote, he said, don't worry, he said to his conservative allies, this is von Papen, within two months, we'll have pushed him, Hitler, so far into a corner, he'll squeal. So in every instance, mainstream or establishment politicians make this Faustian bargain. They open the door, they fail in their gatekeeping functions out of miscalculation, out of opportunism, and they let extremists in the door. In every instance, the mainstream politicians make the same mistake. They make this Faustian bargain, they think they can control the outsider. But in every instance, the Faustian bargain backfires. The same thing happened in the United States, we argue, in 2016. Republicans enabled Donald Trump. Many Republican leading pol political figures openly despised Donald Trump, didn't want him to be the nominee. They could have crossed party lines in principle, right, and supported Hillary Clinton. They could have put democracy ahead of party. This could have made a difference. Not a single leading elected official who had a future in politics openly endorsed Hillary Clinton. Now, you might think this is naive or unrealistic. You know, why would somebody support somebody of the other party? Turns out we don't have to actually look that far for something similar, not identical, but similar. In the 2017 French uh, presidential elections, uh, Francois Fillon, the, France's Republican Party candidate for president, didn't make it to the second round. Uh, he endorsed Macron. He didn't stay silent. He could have endorsed Le Pen. He could have stayed silent. He endorsed Macron, a minister in a socialist government. Uh, his voters went to Macron, and this, this, made, this played an important role. In the United States, Republicans did not do this. They let our Le Pen in the door. Donald Trump was elected president, and once an authoritarian is in the door, it's a changed game. So Steve will tell us what happens next. Americans have a pretty good deal of faith in uh, our constitutional system of checks and balances, and for pretty good reason. We've got the oldest, the most successful constitution in the world, one that is con uh, contained, constrained, many powerful, ambitious, uh, and norm-violating presidents in the past, Andrew Jackson, FDR, Nixon. So why shouldn't it contain Trump? It might, but the second lesson that we drew in researching this book was that the Constitution by itself, as brilliant as it is, is not enough to save us. Constitutions are not self-enacting. They don't work automatically. They did Argentina, whose Constitution in the 19th century was in many ways a, a, an exact replica of, of ours, might have been a stable democracy in the 20th century. Instead, it suffered six military coups. Constitutions work best, we argue in the book, when they're reinforced by robust democratic norms or unwritten rules. And our book focuses not on just any norms, but on two specific ones. One we call mutual toleration, or accepting the legitimacy of our partisan opponents. That means that no matter how much we may dislike or disagree with our rivals, we recognize both publicly and privately that they are loyal citizens that love the country as much as we do, and who have a legitimate equal right to compete and to govern. In other words, we do not treat our rivals as enemies. The second norm, which borrows from uh, my former student, the great young political scientist at Princeton, Alicia Holland, who I think is coming here to speak, is what we call institutional forbearance. Forbearance means refraining from exercising one's legal right. It's an act of self-restraint, deliberate self-restraint. It's an underutilization of power. 
We don't often think about forbearance in politics, but it's absolutely vital. <clears throat> think about what US presidents are constitutionally able to do. President can pardon whomever she wants, whenever she wants. Any president with a congressional majority can pack the Supreme Court. If you don't like the ideological composition of the Supreme Court, don't like the way the Supreme Court is ruling, if you've got a majority in Congress, you can pass legislation to expand the size to 11, to 13, and fill it with allies. That's perfectly legal. Or if a president's agenda is stalled by Congress, she can circumvent the legislative process, make policy through presidential proclamations, executive orders, uh, and other unilateral measures. The Constitution does not explicitly prohibit such behavior. Or think about what Congress can do. Senate has, can use its right under the Constitution of advice and consent to block all of the president's nominations to the cabinet, to the courts, to the Supreme Court. It can prevent the president from filling Supreme Court vacancies. Congress, as we know, can refuse to fund the government. It can effectively shut the government down. And of course, it can impeach the president on virtually any grounds it chooses. My point here is that politicians can exploit the letter of the Constitution, even the US Constitution, in ways that eviscerate its spirit. And that this sort of behavior, which legal scholar Mark Tushnet calls constitutional hardball, can throw a democracy in crisis. It's thrown many democracies in crisis, into crisis in uh, parts of the world that I study. In fact, look at any failing or failed to dem a democracy, and you will find constitutional hardball in abundance. Argentina under Perón, Venezuela under Chavez, Spain and Germany in the 1930s, contemporary Hungary, Poland, Turkey. Constitutional hardball is how even brilliantly designed constitutions or constitutional checks and balances can be subverted. It's how Congresses and judiciaries can get transformed from watchdogs into effectively lapdogs. Take Argentina, again, a constitution that was very, very similar in design to that of the United States. One of the first moves that Perón made after getting elected president in 1946 was to have Congress impeach three out of five Supreme Court justices on the grounds of malfeasance, totally constitutional. Soon afterwards, the Peronist majority in the Congress passed a law making it a crime to um, disrespect the president. When opposition leader Ricardo Babin was arrested under that law, he understandably challenged, uh, challenged the law in the Supreme Court. And guess what? The PAC Supreme Court ruled that the law was constitutional. We see a similar evisceration of checks and balances through entirely legal means in Venezuela, in Turkey, Hungary, elsewhere. What prevents a, consti a, a, a constitutional system of checks and balances from descending into deadlock, into dysfunction, and even into authoritarianism is not necessarily the design of that constitution. It's forbearance. It's a shared understanding among politicians that neither side will deploy its institutional prerogatives to the hill, that the spirit of the law will prevail over the letter of the law. So we argue that norms of mutual toleration and forbearance are essentially the soft guardrails of democracy. They are what, that what help to prevent healthy political competition from spiraling into the kind of partisan fight to the death that wrecked democracies in Europe in the 1930s, in South America in the 1960s and 70s. Now, American democracy has not always had soft guardrails. This is one of the things that I uh, learned quite a bit about in, in, in researching this book. Uh, we certainly were not born with soft guardrails. In the 1790s, 
partisan intolerance and, and quite a bit of constitutional hardball nearly destroyed the republic in, in, in its first generation. Uh, we certainly lost um, norms of, of mutual toleration and forbearance in the run-up to the Civil War, didn't have them for several decades afterwards. But in the beginning of the, or sorry, in the beginning of the late 19th century or so, Democrats and Republicans accepted one another as legitimate and largely avoided destabilizing acts of constitutional horrible. So for about a century, there were no impeachments, there were no successful court packings, senators were pretty judicious in the use of the filibuster, in their right to advice and consent on presidential appointments, largely deferring to the president. And outside of wartime, presidents refrained from acting unilaterally to circumvent the courts or Congress. So for more than a century, checks and balances basically worked. But again, they worked not because of what was written down in the Constitution, or at least not only because of what was written in the Constitution, but because they were reinforced by norms of mutual toleration and forbearance. Now, as we argue in the book, our, our country's norms of, of mutual toleration and forbearance have been unraveling for the last roughly quarter of a century. We saw early signs of this in the 1990s with the Gingrich era government shutdowns with the partisan impeachment of Bill Clinton. But the process really took off in the 2000s. So during the Obama era, leading Republicans, national Republicans, began for the first time in a very long time to abandon mutual toleration. So leaders like Gingrich, Giuliani, Huckabee, Palin, Trump declared that President Obama did not love America, that Obama and the Democrats were not real Americans. Now America, obviously, as Daniel pointed out, has always had an extremist fringe. But this wasn't fringe politics anymore. These were national Republican leaders. This was the Republican Party's 2016 presidential candidate. So leading Republicans have begun over the last couple of decades to deny the legitimacy of their Democratic rivals. They've begun to cast the Democrats as the enemy. That's really worrisome because the decline or the erosion, the disappearance of mutual toleration encourages politicians to abandon forbearance. When we view our partisan rivals as enemies, when we view them as un-American, as anti-American, as a threat to our way of life, we grow tempted to use any means necessary to beat them. And that is exactly what we're beginning to see happen. Politicians are beginning to throw forbearance to the wind. The filibuster, which used to be a procedural weapon of last resort, is now such routine practice that we don't even talk about it. Uh, it's just it's taken for granted. Politicians shut down the government, refuse to raise the debt limit. We see extraordinary acts of constitutional hardball, like the so-called legislative coup that occurred after the North Carolina elections in 2016, and for me, most dramatically of all, the Senate's refusal to allow President Obama to fill a Supreme Court vacancy uh, in 2016, a move that was unprecedented since 1866. All this is before Donald Trump became president. So the problem isn't just that Americans elected a demagogue in 2016. It's that we elected a demagogue at a time when the soft guardrails protecting our democracy are coming unmoored. So why is this happening? We argue in the, I think this is the third lesson. I'm losing yes, track of the number. Yes. There are a lot of lessons in, in researching this book. Yes. I think it's number three. Um, yeah. Um, we argue in the book that what's driving norm erosion, and, and you see this other, in other places in the world too, is partisan polarization. Republicans and Democrats have grown so far apart that they now literally fear and loathe one another. 
you guys are, I'm sure, quite aware of, of some of these data. Uh, in 1960, 4-5% of Democrats and Republicans, at least according to surveys, said they would be unhappy, displeased, if their child married someone from the other party. Today, that number is 50%. Last year, a Pew survey found that 49% of Republicans and 55% of Democrats said that the other party makes them afraid. We've not seen that kind of partisan animosity, that kind of partisan hatred since the end of Reconstruction. And this is not just traditional left-right polarization. People do not fear and loathe one another over taxes and health care. They just don't. Today's partisan differences run a lot deeper than that. They're about race, religion, and way of life. Our parties, as all of you know, have changed dramatically over the last half century. Back in the 1960s and 70s, the Republican and Democratic Party differed on a bunch of issues, but they were culturally, demographically, very, very similar. Both parties were overwhelmingly white and Christian. Three changes have occurred over the last half century. First of all, the Civil Rights Movement led to a massive migration of Southern whites from the Democrat to the Republican Party, while African Americans in, in the South, enfranchised for the first time, became overwhelmingly Democrat. Secondly, the US experienced a massive wave of immigration. Most of those immigrants and their kids ended up in the Democratic Party. And third, since Reagan, since the beginning of the Reagan presidency, evangelical Christians flocked overwhelmingly to the GOP. So by the 2000s, two parties that had been culturally almost indistinguishable 50 years earlier were now culturally very different. The Democrats were a rainbow coalition, of basically of urban educated whites and a range of ethnic minorities. And the Republicans, by contrast, remained overwhelmingly white and Christian. And that's important because white Christians are not just any group. They were once an electoral majority, and they used to sit unchallenged atop the country's social, economic, political hierarchies. They filled the presidency, the Congress, the Supreme Court, governor's mansions. They were pillars of local communities. They were the CEOs. They were the newscasters. They were the movie stars. They were the college professors. They were the face of both the Democratic and Republican parties. Those days are long gone, obviously. But losing a majority, losing one's social status, can be a deeply threatening thing. Many Republican voters, not all, many Republican voters feel like the country that they grew up with or in is being taken away from them. That, we think, is ultimately what's fueling polarization in this country. Problem is that extreme polarization can kill democracies. This is a major lesson from the failure of democracies in Europe in the 1930s and South America in the 70s, when politics is so deeply polarized that each side views the victory of the other side as intolerable, as something that's beyond the pale, democracy's in trouble. When an opposition victory is viewed as intolerable, we begin to justify using extraordinary means to prevent such an outcome. Things like violence, election fraud, even coups. Now, Americans obviously have not reached that point. But we have reached a point where according to exit polls, one out of four Trump voters said they believed that Donald Trump was unfit for the presidency of the United States. One out of four Trump voters did not believe Trump to be fit for the office of the presidency, and yet they still preferred him to the Democrat. We've reached a point where according to Gallup consistently over the last year and a half, Republicans have a far more favorable view of Vladimir Putin than they do Hillary Clinton. Those are dangerous levels of polarization. So Trump is a challenge, 
But the most fundamental challenge that we face today is extreme polarization, driven by a radicalized Republican Party, many of whose members perceive themselves to face an existential threat. Trump is a symptom of that polarization. He's not a cause of it. And his departure from office, whether next year, 2020, 2024, won't put an end to it. So what can be done quickly? We have no idea. Um, let me just be clear about that. Um, for one, it's clear that the Republican Party has to change. It has to become a more diverse party as long as it, become, as it remains overwhelmingly white Christian in a society as diverse as ours, it will be prone to polarizing white nationalist appeals. Um, for the Republicans to change, I think it's pretty clear that they have to lose. So the 2018, 2020 elections are obviously critical. But elections may not be enough. Electoral defeat of the Republican Party may well not be enough. Because if Democrats were to say sweep the you know, purple districts and purple states, that will leave the, 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 the rump Republican Party, at least in the short run, more extremist than ever before. Um, so we need to think about what Democrats can do. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in progressive and Democratic circles about learning how to fight like Republicans. If Republicans are going to play constitutional hardball, the Democrats need to learn how to play tit for tat. If they don't, they will be victims of an endless series of sucker punches, stolen Supreme Court seats and the like. Um, and Democrats are, in fact, learning how to fight like Republicans. They're doing a good job. They just used a filibuster to trigger their, their very own first government shutdown straight out of the Newt Gingrich playbook. Many Democrats are running on a platform of impeachment this year. And if Democrats win control of the Senate, there is serious talk among, uh, excuse me, among progressives of denying President Trump the ability to fill a Supreme Court vacancy just like the Republicans did to President Obama. This is an understandable response, and it's in fact a response that many smart people are advocating for, including, uh, at least in what I've read, the guy who invented the term constitutional hardball, Mark Tushnet. <laughs> <laughs> but we're skeptical. If Democrats respond with constitutional hardball, first of all, it will almost certainly reinforce and even accelerate the process of norm erosion. In other words, it will further corrode our democratic guardrails. And in our experience, studying other democracies in crisis, in Europe, in Latin America, that sort of escalation almost never ends well. I want to suggest that it's actually in the Democrats' self-interest to refrain from engaging in constitutional hardball. Uh, as David Frum argues in his recent book, which I shouldn't be promoting because it's a rival. <laughs> um, as David Frum argues, the Republican Party is operating today with very short time horizons, very narrow time horizons. As it is currently constituted, the Republican Party is going to have a hard time winning elections, at least at the national level, in the medium term. Uh, so it's doing everything possible to hang on to power now. In other words, its hardball tactics are essentially an act of desperation. That's Frum's argument. Democrats, by, and this is my argument, Democrats have better medium-term prospects. The greatest threat to those, to those prospects is an escalating conflict that puts democracy at risk. So Democrats have an interest in preserving democratic rules of the game. They stand to benefit from them. More broadly and a little more normatively, there are times when politicians have to think seriously about the cost that their behavior has on democratic institutions. Normally, when politicians consider 
tactics, how they're going to vote on, on something, whether they're going to, to support a government shutdown or not, they factor in two things. They factor in their own policy goals, and they factor in the political consequence, the electoral consequences of that act. So you, sh you shut down the government if it helps to preserve DACA, and it doesn't cost too many votes. What we're suggesting is that in, during periods of democratic crisis, when our democratic institutions are beginning to be imperiled, politicians have to factor in a third consideration. They have to factor in the consequences of their behavior for democratic institutions. That may sound pretty Pollyannish. That may be asking a lot of politicians. But when democracies are in trouble, going on with politics as usual, in which short-term political calculations prevail over all else, can have devastating consequences. We cannot take American democracy for granted. It is true, it is true that no democracy even remotely as old or as wealthy as ours has ever broken down. That is empirically true. But there's reason to think that we are in uncharted territory. Levels of income inequality are higher today than at any time since before the Great Depression. And we've begun a transition that to my knowledge, and I'm not an expert in this, no democracy has ever successfully undergone. And that's a transition in which a previously dominant uh, ethnic group loses its majority status. Our colleague Danielle Allen observes that there's never really been a truly multi-ethnic democracy in the world. We may well be the first one, but getting there is going to require that we overcome an intense and highly polarizing reaction. And we cannot afford during that period to be reckless with our institutions. We simply have too much to lose. Let me stop there. Thanks. Where do we? Oh, yeah. Just sit down. I feel so what I have to say is going to be very bland after that stump speech. Um, that was a Trump speech. Not right? <laughs> um, I want to thank everyone for, people for inviting me to be part of this session, and I want to thank. Stephen Dan for the book, uh, it's wonderful. And I, you know, when I see, you know, I'm an American historian. This is my terrain, et cetera. I have no, I'm not going to quibble about any of this. It's just, it's, it's a wonderful book. Um, it's rare that I found the book which is simultaneously so frightening and so enjoyable to read. And I'm not sure exactly what that says about me and my tastes. Um, but if you're worried about the state of American democracy and its future, this book will tell you that you're right to be worried and it will help to articulate uh, some of the reasons why. Um, it also, the book also offers a few wisps of hope at the end about what we might do about it. Um, but en that's enough praise. I only have 10 minutes. Um, I, I want to I I raise three questions, some of which have been uh, alluded to in the talk, some of which are more f from the book, but let me try to uh, do, do the best I can. The first um, is I want to I raise um, I want to raise a question, a theme that is much more present in the book um, than it was in the talk, that, you know, which is it's inevitable, although it certainly came out very strongly um, at the end. Um, and this is a point that, that, uh, that the authors make. It's a, it's a historical point where they talk about the fact that in the post-Civil War era, for one thing, you know, American democracy broke down at the Civil War, right? And the Civil War was not a success for forbearance um, or, uh, or, or any other virtues. But after the Civil War, they rightly point out how deeply polarized 
uh, the American party system was. I mean, and there are indicators even that they didn't go into, for example, the extent of party, partisan gerrymandering that was taking place in the United States in the final decades of the 19th century exceeded anything that you could imagine. Um, you know, there were th many states were redistricting three, four times a decade. Um, and the, and they, at that point, there was no one person, one vote requirement, so you could reapportion as well as redistrict. Um, it was staggering. I mean, that we should attach asterisks to every election result in the record books um, because of the, the flagrant violation of rules. But the key thing here is that they, they point out that, in fact, this period of intense polarization and distrust does come to an end around the turn of the century. Um, and leads to a period of more uh, moderate party behavior. But, and this is the but which they didn't talk about in the talk, but they sketch out very, very clearly and rightly in the book, they do it at the expense of removing race from the national agenda and allowing this complete suppression and eradication of democracy in the South, okay? The, pri the price of getting that comedy in American po uh, politics was the creation of a completely undemocratic and repressive large region of the United States. Um, and they, they don't shrink from that. And you know, they, they acknowledge that. Um, that uh, and I, I would enlarge the point actually at the end of the 19th century because I think that what you see in those decades is not just the end of democracy in the American South, but severe limits placed on American democracy elsewhere. It's not only in the South that there are restrictions on voting rights imposed in the, uh, in the late 19th century. Grandfather clauses came from the Northeast. Okay, Massachusetts uh, had a grandfather clause. Literacy tests. Uh, came, came from the Northeast. There is a suppression on a class basis and on an ethnic basis, a suppression of immigrant workers that is nowhere near as wholesale as what happened in the South, but it is very strong nonetheless. And at the same time, the two parties colluded as they're making nice, you know, as they're moving towards mutual toleration, they colluded to create rules that would prevent third and fourth parties from getting on the ballot uh, in, in many states. Uh, so th this, this is, there, is a, there are prices were paid. And then uh, to leap ahead really to uh, Steve's last comment, and I think I could tell, and we all could tell, I think a lot of the American history in some, in some of these same terms. Um, I think there really is, you know, a, a question here about, you know, the, re the recent outbreak of, of partisan uh, hostility and extreme, and extreme polarization coincides, it comes after a period of black enfranchisement, as was true during Reconstruction also, it comes after a period of black enfranchisement and empowerment, and during another period of massive immigration, okay? And I think that the question this raises, you know, for us um, is, you know, is the story of the United States a story that is democratic as long as it engages in certain kinds of racial and ethnic suppression? Um, and that we have not yet succeeded, as they suggested at the end, in, cre in creating and continuing um, and perpetuating democratic institutions which are inclusive. That's my first point. Um, second, uh, in terms of what's gone on recently and the extreme polarization and the breaking of norms, and I don't question any of uh, the facts about that, um, and, uh, and also the fact that the key fact that the breaking of norms is coming largely from Republicans. They pose this directly as a question, they answer it, they address it um, head on. But I'm, 
I'm uncertain, and I want to raise the question again, because the talk came out a little different than the book, about what's at stake. Why have the Republicans been, do why, been doing this? Um, what are they afraid to lose? What do they seek to gain? Now, the answer that, that's, that Steve gave here, you know, when I was sort of calling automatics at the line, because it, it played out a little different, um, was basically to say that it had to do with a that attempts, probably futile, but attempts to maintain a white Christian republic. Um, and that it's the desperation and hostility and energy um, that, that has come out of that. But then, I mean, I had an alternative explanation, but I'll, I'll treat it somewhat differently. If what you're trying to preserve um, is a white Christian uh, political dominance, why, why does that require getting rid of the regulation of business, uh, sort of undermining social insurance programs that have existed for 80 years, um, undermining the right to unionize um, and stripping away voting rights. So the latter is the easiest to, to explain. Um, but so I guess, I guess uh, there's still to me something of a mystery about what all is at stake in, the, in what's been going on for the last uh, 20 or 25 years. Third point has to do with um, the issue of tolerance and forbearance. And I think that, you know, that, that the book is extremely insightful about talking about the importance of those, of those norms and of the desirability of treating political adversaries as just that, as adversaries and not as the enemy. I mean, I think that as a rule of thumb, that's true. But sometimes they are the enemy. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm not sure, you know, and how, how can you tell um, what, you know, what tests um, if they do seem authoritarian, and there's also a trap here, right? I mean, this goes back also to the gatekeeping function, but that if you suspect that a certain political candidate or a certain political grouping is authoritarian, and you sort of go to try to you know, exclude them on the grounds that they're authoritarian, that will prove their point <laughs> that the system isn't fair. I mean, remember Trump saying the election was rigged um, you know, uh, before the election? I mean, he, he was right. It was rigged by the Electoral College, which uh, <laughs> there will be a book for sale on that subject shortly. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, I guess, I guess, I guess what I'm saying, you know, with the, that the desirability of treating the opposition as the legitimate opposition seems to me to be, you know, a valued norm. But it, it also seems to me that there are going to be exceptional circumstances, and it's unclear to me how we can identify them. I mean, sometimes the people that you want to call fascists are fascists. Um, and, uh, and you should not forbear from calling them fascists. Or to take a more arcane historical example with which I will close, when the Jeffersonians, as is indicated in the book, um, Jeffersonians are, you know, uh, at the end of the 18th and early 19th century denounced the Federalists and particularly denounced Alexander Hamilton as having sort of, uh, sort of monarchist sympathies. They were right. He did have monarchist sympathies. Let me conclude there and open it up to questions. <laughs> I have answers to each of these. So you probably need two them. So. That was great. Thank you very much. You guys want to come back up? And we've, uh, we'll use the rest of the time for questions. And we have a, a good amount of time for questions. I think a lot of provocative issues have been raised. Catherine Sicking. Here, Catherine. First, thank you for a terrific talk. 
uh, and I can't wait to read the book. So my question is just based on the talk. Um, but it seems to me first that there's an irony here, right? And, and Alex just signaled it, but you know, you've written a book called, you know, this provocative name, How Democracies Die. You've convinced us that the Republicans are the problem. As Alex said, maybe they are the enemy. <laughs> And then you tell us the main message is forbearance. In other words, you have a book with very, apparently, not very much forbearance or toleration that urges us to, be for, to have forbearance and toleration. So how do you, you know, deal with that irony? And in particular, the second part is the whole presentation, no one mentioned really the, the role of voters in this, as if the, if the public, if the voters, have nothing to do with this process, and yet, you know, we have this big problem that, that Alex and others have talked about that we're going to talk about at the May 3rd event, and that's, you know, more people didn't vote than voted for either of the two candidates. And many of those people were Democrats who didn't vote, you know, who voted in 2012 and didn't vote in 2016, okay? And, you know, some of those, you know, 40% of the public, 50% of youth, and 48% of, 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 you know, st of students. Uh, actually, I gave it wrong. 52% of students didn't vote, okay? So what, what role do voters play in any of this, right? And wh how, do, how does some of this uh, uh, rhetoric, right, of all the problems with our political system justify a lot of those young people who think the system is so corrupt, why should we go to vote? Why should we care? Because it's corrupt. Okay. <coughs> Go for it. We have to answer that now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I knew I was going to do that. Um, we are not selling any easy solutions. When, when, when uh, a Democratic small d opposition is confronted with a, an authoritarian or potentially authoritarian or potentially abusive government in a Democratic context, uh, you can think back to uh, Spain in the, in the 30s, think back to Germany, uh, there are no good choices. There are no easy choices. There's no single recipe that I could tell you that this is the way out to preserve democracy. It's, it's, you are faced with two very difficult choices. One is you engage in norm-preserving behavior at the cost of being steamrolled. Um, the other is that you engage in uh, you, you know, you, uh, no-holds-barred opposition at the risk of escalating the conflict and, 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 and throwing the country into a democratic death spiral, like we've seen in Spain, in Chile, in Brazil, elsewhere. Um, so there, there is no easy answer to your first question. I, I want to be super clear about that. Uh, if, if I had that answer, I would have a much better paying job. Um, <laughs> our bet is that since democratic institutions here in this case are quite strong, and since the, uh, there are still many potentially norm, uh, uh, pro-democratic constituencies within the Republican Party, that a, that, that a safer bet for, small, again, small D and large D Democrats is, is to be very cautious before throwing all Caution to the wind. Um, the second, the, do you want to answer the second question about voters? 
Well, I mean, we talked, I talked about voters when I said that around 35% of voters tend to vote for the, support these kind of guys in opinion polls. So that, that is probably a bias that we have in our, in our account, but I, I think essentially what we are rejecting is the view that's out there, that somehow we're in this kind of moment of, we're, this is like global warming, that voters are just becoming more and more disaffected from politics, that voters are turning away from democratic institutions, and that we're in this new, brave new world where things are only getting worse, and so we have to deal with this. Our view, I think this is right, is that we're, this is much more like an earthquake. We're in a moment of crisis, the voter, voters' disaffection grow, fluctuates. Sometimes people are more disaffected from politics, other times not, and we have to, focus on building up our political institutions to, to deal with these kinds of challenges. And so I think, you know, so we have an elite focus in that sense, in the sense that we think our political parties have an important role in making sure that these tremors, these moments of crisis, don't overturn the political system. So, you know, it's not to say that people shouldn't be studying voters and the sources of disaffection and, how, you know, how to change voter turnout patterns and so on. But I guess our, the way we approach this is to say, okay, given all of that, what, what can our political institutions do, our political parties do, to protect ourselves, protect the system, to make it more accountable, uh, but at the same time maintain stability? So I think that, that's, that's part of the kind of particular angle we have on this. Yeah, we, we come, I, I guess we should be more open about this, we come from, a, in this book, from a very Lindsayan tradition, which is very elite focused. We also both study political parties, so that's also <laughs> nudges us in an elite direction. Uh, who's got the mic? I have the microphone. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm doing a uh, thesis right now on rebuilding American soft power. And um, um, in my thesis, I look at small businesses because small businesses are the basis for a strong capitalistic society and small, uh, strong democracy. And uh, I read your book, but I didn't find anything that talks about <laughs> like economics and small business. Um, and yet, um, I found uh, um, that small businesses from 1989 to 1999 were decimated in the states in the amount of 600,000 per year. And uh, that's the basis of democracy, not race or religion. And in my opinion, I'm a Democrat, by the way, but in my opinion, over 70% of Trump voters voted because of economic poverty, not because of race or, or um, not because of race or religion. Um, now, my question is, we, we're, we're in a leading public policy school right now, and yet we all know that as we talk right now, in D.C., congressmen are voting without reading bills. Let's be honest. So what ways would you, would you, would you suggest to change the system that special interests are not going to hijack democracy? Good God. Um, <laughs> uh, quick, quickly, I mean, one area where I think that we could, we, we touch on in the last chapter of the book that we certainly could have spent more time on is the uh, changing political economy in this country and the effects that that's had uh, on, on inequality, on social mobility, on economic opportunity. There's no question that, that those econ social and economic changes. I disagree with you that, that the Trump election was more about uh, income than, than, than race. I think it was much more about race. But, um, and, and that our partisan polarization is much more about race and culture than, than income or distribution. But there's no question that, uh, that, that, that our, our changing economy, 
the, the, uh, and declining economic opportunities for a big swath of the middle class, not just small business, but a big swath of the middle class has contributed to uh, frustration, anger towards the political elite, towards the system, and towards populist voting. Um, so we touch on this. We don't, um, many of you have written books. It's hard to cover everything in a book and, and, and have a clear message. So we decided to foc on, focus on, on, on political norms, which has cost. It means that we didn't develop other issues. But you're, you're absolutely right that that matters. It, w one way that the, I mean, we can kind of combine these arguments is to think, you know, imagine a counterfeit. The way the world actually, what the way history unfolded was we had this incredible democratizing reform of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act in the mid-1960s. And then seven years later, the global economy began to transform you know, the early 70s. And so the, it's the combination of this increasing democratization with these economic forces that in many ways I think we're witnessing the backlash to this. Had, imagine a counterfactual world in which the United States, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act had passed in 1950. And then you had 30 years, 25 years of economic growth, of declining economic inequality we might be living in a very different world. So in many ways, I think we kind of had the, the misfortune, historical misfortune of having our democratic reforms come you know, too late, certainly for the people who receive the reforms, but also more broadly to build coalitions in support of them. I just want to say one thing on the forbearance and this dilemma um, about, about forbearance. So um, there, there's this novel that I'm, I've assigned, I'm teaching a course on politics of Europe. This, and this week we're dealing with the collapse of the Weimar Republic and I've assigned a book by a novel by Leon Feuchtwanger, um, called the Opermans, which is about this Jew German Jewish family in Berlin. And they're trying to cope with the rise of, Hit with Hit of Hitler. And on a very daily basis, this is this wealthy family that owns furniture stores. On a very daily basis, they're showing forbearance. They're saying, well, we can get by. We can make this work. We can make this work. And things just keep getting worse. And so you know, I'm very, you know, having read that and having assigned that to my students, I kind of see the weaknesses of this. I mean, there's a sense in which you know, this, isn't this just being too passive in the face of real threats? And I think, as Steve said, you know, it's a, it's a dynamic, it's a fluid and dynamic situation. I th it's not as if forbearance is always demanded at all times. I mean, this is not as kind of one single key to understand politics in all times and places. Certainly, there's moments where less forbearance is necessary, even within a single political system. There be, may be become, there may arise certain moments in our own, you know, next five years where we would not make the same argument. But we wrote this. We wrote this really, you know, over the course of last summer and this fall. And it's, in some ways, I think we're probably less optimistic than we were then. I mean, we, had, and the, we lay out in the book, you know, the different strategies that Republicans may take in separating themselves from Trump. That hasn't happened. And so as circumstances change, the principles become harder and harder to defend. And it becomes harder and harder to say, well, forbearance is always the right thing to do. I mean, but I guess despite the changing circumstances, our point is simply to put this idea on the agenda and to say this is at least one other. There, there's a cost. There's a potential cost to ignoring this idea and that the system becomes less sustainable with, without, without at least making this as part of our, you know, including this in, as part of our calculation. Hi, uh, my name is Matt McDowell. I'm a student here, uh, right here. Um, and uh, I really appreciate the comparative um, perspectives that you bring in from your, uh, from your prior uh, work, uh, like for example, the Finland, uh, the Lapua movement in Finland and the Belgian things that people may not have heard of. Um, one comparative, thing that I was kind of anticipating and looking for but didn't really see in the book, and I wonder if you can speak to, is the very similar, you know, like Canada, Australia, countries that are very similar to the United States culturally in terms of the recent non-white immigration, the secularization, and a lot of the things that have happened that you attribute or that you 
assign to uh, as reasons for this kind of culture war that's happening in the United States and this intense polarization that's happening here, it seems to me that we have very similar cultures and similar trends, um, loss of manufacturing, all kinds of, there are many similar trends in Australia and Canada, yeah. and similar, you know, federal government, some, some aspects of the government is similar. So what are your thoughts on kind of the dog that didn't bark or like why we haven't seen massive culture war and polarization in those countries and we have in the United States? That's a great question. I mean, we, we take up the, uh, the issue of multicultural democracy late in, in, in the book, and it's really not, we, we, had, to, we had to write, research and write this book in a hurry, and there were big gaps in our knowledge that we had to fill in a hurry. Uh, so we didn't do anywhere near the kind of research on, uh, on, on multi-ethnic democracy that, that we might have and that I would have liked to. We also focused on two, di when, we, when we researched comparative cases, we looked at two types. We looked at, but there were all democracies in crisis. Democracies in crisis that survived, democracies in crisis that did not survive, that broke down. What we did not spend much time on, and I think you point to, to a, a flaw, is dogs that didn't bark at all. <laughs> democracies, democracies that did not fall into crisis, including in some of the, the demographic and social and cultural conditions that the United States is now confronting. So um, were we to rewrite the last chapter, I think we would have at least touched upon the, the very interesting and important comparisons in, in Canada and Australia. I think Canada, I knock on wood, my friends who worry a lot about Canada in the coming years as well, but thus far is, is a pretty good model in terms of, uh, of responding to diversity in democracy. Very good. Um, Word from the back bench. Uh, back here, uh, uh, Nancy Gibbs, who's a new visiting professor, the new Edward R. Murrow visiting professor. Uh, thank you for your terrifying book. I'm uh, curious about, in comparison to your examples of Italy or Germany or Venezuela, how much you attribute the president's success to um, the failure of the gatekeepers to stop him versus his success in disintermediating them in going around the media through his use of social media, going around the donors because of the way he drove free media, going around the party apparatus itself that obviously, as you said, a lot of them were trying to stop him. How much of it was that he operated differently than past authoritarians? And if so, what does that mean for stopping future ones? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I think you know, one way to think about all of these figures that we've talked about, maybe Steve could talk about Hugo Chavez, but I think the same applies to him, but, is, but certainly to Italy and Germany, is that in every instance, these outsiders are great media manipulators. I mean, there are people who take advantage of new sources of media, you know, in their particular era in which they're living. I mean, this is, this is the way they catapult themselves from the outskirts of the political system and suddenly to put themselves right at the center of attention. In each, in each of these instances, they all have a flair for the dramatic. You know, Mussolini's march on Rome was not actually a march on Rome. It was a completely fabricated story. He took a sleeping car to Rome, showed up, and, you know, was wearing a, a, a bowler hat and kind of marched through the streets with soldiers who greeted him, and he walked through the streets and had marched on Rome and went and met with the prime ministers, or the king. So, you know, but he turned it into a media spectacle. So these are people who knew, know how to use media. So I guess that's a commonality, I would say. Certainly the media that... Donald Trump has used is different, um, but you know, in each era, it's whatever the new media of the 
of the of the age is. That's what gets that's what gets used. And so I, I get, I'm trying to think of what the broader lesson to that. I mean, I think in every instance, the party leaders though are are intimidated by this because the people these are often there's a level of hubris. I mean, I think establishment politicians think they know how to do things. They are in power, and so somebody comes along with the new sets of technologies that they rely upon. And they don't, and and the, the kind of mainstream politicians don't really know how to deal with this, and they want to tap into this, and so that's that's again the miscalculation that that, that takes place. And I think Hugo Ch Hugo Chavez was similarly, kind, you know, dressed up in his costumes, and you know was, was you know played and played it, played up his kind of outsider status, and there was interviews of him in jail with the presidential palace in the background, out the window, and you know by journalists would come and interview him. So th these were people, are, you know, arch manipulators of the media. Gentleman in the back corner there. Hi, my name is Jim Kloppenberg. I'm in the history department, like Alex, a historian. Uh, unlike Steve and Dan, um, some critics think that I did put everything in a book that was published six months before the election <laughs> called Toward Democracy. And it could have been called How Democracies Are Born. Uh, it's a study of European and American democracy. And I'm struck by the congruence between my argument about the importance of what I call an ethic of reciprocity mm. and what you call mutual toleration. I think without that, democracies are never born. And civil war does kill them. And my book ends with the American Civil War because I think there's been very little uh, movement toward democracy since then. Um, I would point out in response to Alex that in 1800, Jefferson quite deliberately lowers the temperature because I think you're right, Hamilton did have the idea of uh, monarchy very much uh, in mind. But Jefferson quite deliberately um, wants to say we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists. And that, I think, is what um, Dan and Steve were calling for. And I think that's a, a very important uh, reminder. The question in the uh, end of all of this is, if, in fact, the current parties are a rainbow coalition on the one hand and a small and shrinking uh, number of white Christians on the other, isn't demography destiny, and we're very, in very short order going to find uh, not only a rump Republican Party, but an increasingly small rump Republican Party uh, that cannot compete with the Rainbow Coalition. And in that case, shouldn't we be optimistic rather than pessimistic about the future of this Rainbow Coalition? Well, first of all, demography is never entirely destiny. Politics and economics find ways to rear their head uglier otherwise. Um, so they're, uh, you know, which is why political scientists are notoriously bad at predicting anything. Um, so you can never rely on, on demography. Uh, and, you know, and Repu smart Republicans, in fact, most Republicans, are well aware of this demographic problem. Uh, in fact, after the, the 2012 election, the Republican uh, leadership, to the extent that it exists, um, you know, organized a, an, an autopsy of the election which produced a report which sounds like chapter nine of our book, which is we've got to develop a platform that appeals to younger, more urban, uh, and more diverse electorate. They, they didn't, the party went in a very different direction, uh, in part because the Republican Party establishment doesn't There is exist. no party. There is no party. Yeah. Um, so nobody, was paying, nobody could actually enforce that on the party, which is a, a problem of party weakness. But um, Republicans are aware of this, and the, so the, optim, the optimistic scenario is basically what, 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 you, what you lay out, Jim, that the Republicans need to take a thumping in an election uh, and need to decide to pretty radically restructure their base 
uh, to, to operate in the, in the 21st century United States. Uh, and that may well happen. I'm quite worried about the damage they can do in the meantime, because we don't know whether that happens in two years, four years, eight years, or 20 years. Uh, and, I, and, I'm a, and I'm pretty worried about the damage that can be done in the meantime. I don't know if you want to add anything. Yeah, so I mean, what you have laid out in this kind of optimistic scenario is essentially the future of America is California, where there is no Republican Party. Okay, and I'm from California, and I, you know, I'm all for that. But I guess, you know, I, I, I'm worried, though, about this as a solution. Um, you know, so in a book that I wrote last year on conservative parties that kind of has some, some of it makes its way into this book as well, I argue that, you know, you can't wish away conservatives. You can't wish away the right. This, all political systems have a right, have, a conser have conservatives. And so the question is, what kind of right are you going to have? And when you have no competition and a completely hegemonic, Democratic Party, what I fear is the kind of backlash against that. And so how sustainable is that really to have a rump Republican Party? I mean, what, what, again, as Steve says, what damage is done in the meantime? And you get further radicalization. I mean, this is, you know, we have this kind of view, perhaps, that, well, if this, you know, if this, the German Social Democrats in Weimar were very happy as the, as the conservatives, the conservative party disintegrated. You know, little did they know what was coming. You know, so I think, I think we have to be, you know, we want two parties competing for power. Competition, electoral competition is a, is a viable thing. And so we need to have a viable, reasonable Republican Party. Last question goes to David Gergen. <clears throat> Let me follow that up if I, I might. Uh, we've been through constitutional crises before, and one of the last ones was with Richard Nixon. And the checks and balances worked out better than anybody expected in that time. I went through that and it was, you know, the courts, uh, the Congress, especially the Republicans, uh, like Howard Baker stepping up, uh, the press, and public opinion, uh, which really swung against. And I'm wondering whether one can't find some more hope in the checks and balances actually re reasserting themselves here. It is, to be sure, the Republican Party is in a cowardly role right now and not stepping up the way Howard Baker and those other folks did way back when. Uh, but the business community is stepping up in ways we have not seen uh, on climate change, on Charlottesville, on a series of other issues. But even more importantly is, is the coming of this new generation that we see out there. And we have an opportunity to be among here in, in the school. Uh, and, and that is, it, it's just this astonishing outpouring of women now who want to get into the political process. You know, to, in the last cycle in politics, a thousand women called Emily's List for help in running for office. In the last 12 months, 26,000 women have called and asked how they can run for office. Uh, we see that in an outpouring of Marines who are running for Congress. They're twice the number running, not Marines, just veterans, recent veterans, post 9-11 veterans. 150 are now running for Congress. And some of them have decent shots. This young man who just won in Pennsylvania is a good example of that. We've just had the Parkland students here, um, and they were just a remarkably inspiring group of young people who are much more poised and ready to act and ready to be in the streets than we've seen in a long time. So I'm wondering if we're not seeing the, the, the coming together of pieces uh, that could, in fact, bring up. Uh, if, if the Democrats won back the House and, and this, this year and two years later knocked out Trump, you might write a very important, a different book. Uh, this is a very important book for now. It's a very important set of warnings, but I'm wondering if one can be hope, more hopeful about the future. Yeah, I would, I would say having gone around speaking to people, I mean, we, not just in Cambridge, not just to the Kennedy School, but you know, how, you know, we, 
I was just in DC meeting with a group, a, a group of nonprofits, uh, people from nonprofit organizations who came to DC. I'm, I come away with more optimism speaking to people and seeing the level of engagement that people have. You know, so I think that you know, our current crisis, is not, it's not being taken, you know, people aren't taking this laying down. I mean, there's really, there is a kind of mobilization. And, and I often repeat to people that exactly these figures of the number of women running for office. And, the, and this, this, so at some level, I guess, the, the, the world in which I'm less optimistic having written this than when I first wrote this, but we wrote this book last summer, uh, is you know, the, what the Republicans are doing. And I'm kind of increasingly nervous. But that's something that I hadn't experienced having written this book and sitting in Cambridge is the degree to which very moderate, reasonable people throughout the United States, and Theda Scotchpole is doing work on this as well, just are not, are not happy with the current situation. So I think there's actually, there is room for optimism, but I think it's less in the checks and balance of, of our political system and much more a kind of grassroots organization that, you know. Yes, yeah, that's right. This is one, this is something that's working, I think. Yeah. It's what Latin Americanists call social accountability. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I would, I'd rather rely on institutional checks than, than society, it's sort of a last recourse. Um, and we're not, I mean, we don't position ourselves, even though you know, we adopted a sexy title, um, we, don't, we don't view ourselves as, you know, there's a wide spectrum in terms of optimism and pessimism today. And, and we sort of view ourselves in, in the middle. We're, we're, we're not among, I hope nobody reads the book and thinks we're among those who think that fascism is around the corner. Uh, we actually think there are very good reasons to expect that our democratic institutions will muddle through. Our, our, our main point is simply to say we, we should not be taking our democratic institutions for granted any longer. We should worry. Great. Thank you very much. I'd like to close. I'd like to close with three thoughts. One is to uh, the first exchange between Catherine and Steve, I think. It's a question for all of us as students and scholars of democracy, but also as citizens. We're in this moment now where it is a very deep question about whether the choice you make is to forbear and try to reinforce the democratic norms that we all regard as important, or whether to join the resistance and fight uh, with, uh, in a hardball way with all of the tools of constitutional hardball that are available. And that, as you very honestly said, is not an easy question. The second thought is this is just a delightful discussion because of all of the perspectives that folded in, the comparative perspective, the histor uh, several historical perspectives, a practical and experienced perspective of what do we do now. And so that makes for a really wonderful discussion. And then the third is just to thank Steve and uh, Dan for a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you. Thanks for the great question. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.